Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Can you keep a secret? Some of you are shaking, nodding your, shaking your head, nodding your head, yeah. Can you keep a secret? Uh, it reminds me of a program on TV when I was a young fella and a teenager. It ran for about 15 years. I think the first host was Gary Moore, and then after that, Steve Allen, and then Bill Cullen. What was the name of that program that aired up until 1967? I've got a secret, yeah. And people came on that show, and they uh, had the panelists guess in yes or no, uh, questions that could be answered only in yes or no. And bit by bit, if they didn't guess what the secret was, the not contestant, but the person with the secret would accrue a little bit of money. And they sold their secret to a... Uh, broadcast audience all across the land. I've got a secret. Do you have a secret? Can you keep it? Let me illustrate from some examples in my life. Um, Every fall and spring, but mainly in the fall, on our campuses across this country, the population is divided into two parts. Well, it's divided in more than that, but two parts in this respect. There are those that are Greeks, and those that are Gentiles, no, not Gentiles. I think we call them independents. And if you've ever been part of a fraternity, you know what I mean. And if you were an independent and didn't like fraternities or sororities, you also know what I mean. But in that, what happened was, or happens is, those that join a fraternity or sorority make a pledge. In fact, not only make a pledge, but they become pledges. And they go through about a quarter or a semester of time as pledges before they are initiated. And when they keep their pledge faithfully and they prove themselves, then they go through an initiation. My initiation was in 1969. I am a Sigma Pi, SP, first two letters of my name. I don't know if there's a correlation there. And I'm thankful that I am a Sigma Pi because that is how I met an Alpha Gamma Delta at Auburn University. And uh, we met on a blind date. In that initiation, we learned certain mysteries about the fraternity or sorority. And you pledge to keep that secret the rest of your life. I have kept that secret for 53 years. The password, the secret handshake, and no, I'm not a Mason, okay? (laughs) So I've kept that secret. And then I graduated from uh, college, and I entered the military, as you well know. And every person that enters the military makes a pledge. We call it an oath of office. You swear that you will defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And then after that, you go through a process of indoctrination. You go to basic training or some kind of training, and eventually advanced training where you get in the Army, they call it a military occupational skill, an MOS. In the Air Force, they call it an AFSC. 
in the Navy, you get a rating. And in that, you have a special knowledge. And it's not necessarily a secret, but you've been initiated into that community. But for most people in the military, there, come, there comes a time when you do learn secrets that you must keep secret. I took an 8-inch nuclear projectile assembly course at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, uh, in 1974. And I learned secrets. I had to have a top secret clearance to take that course. And I learned secrets that I still cannot divulge. I've kept those secrets now for 48 years. Uh, the fact of the matter is, folks, I don't even remember them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> don't trust me with an 8-inch nuclear projectile now. It's one of the reasons I became a chaplain. So, can you keep a secret? When I was six years old, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I asked him to be the Lord of my life. I repented of my sins and asked him to be my Savior. And he has been ever since, and he's walked with me ever since. That's a lot longer time in my life, 66 years ago. I then was initiated into the community of faith by what right? Baptism. L. Don Miley baptized me on the 7th of December, 1957. I was seven then, and I was brought into the family of God visibly through that act of initiation. And since then, as many of you, as most of you, I was initiated into the mysteries of the faith, the mysteries of the faith through such things as Sunday school, Baptist training union. Now, that goes back a ways. I'm, no, I don't go all the way back to BYPU, okay? That was in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, training union, and then disciple training, and now in many churches, nothing. You see, what we do is we are initiated into the, into the mysteries by what? Studying the Word of God and learning those things that once were hidden but now have been revealed, it's a sad state of affairs today. Many Christians do not know the mysteries of the faith. It's also a sad state of affairs that in many Baptist churches, members do not know what, at some time in history, Baptists have gone to prison and died for. Mysteries of the faith. We have a responsibility to teach and to learn those mysteries. The difference about those secrets, the big difference is we are told by the Lord Jesus Christ not to keep them secret, to do just the opposite, and that is to what? Go and share them with others so they might come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and be initiated into the family of God and give evidence of that through believer's baptism and to learn and then to share those mysteries Today we're talking about the mystery of godliness in our apologetic series, and we have affirmed certain of those revealed mysteries. That's what we've been doing for the last few weeks. We have been talking about those things which are rather mysterious, which have been revealed in Scripture. Think about it, the points that we've covered so far in our unapologetic series. God exists. That is a fact. But there's still a mystery about that, isn't there? There's still something a secretive about it. As we heard from the end of Sathisha's reading this morning, 
Who really understands the mind of the Lord to instruct him? There's a mystery about who God is. Truth exists, and Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. But how can we really fully fathom the truths that he governs and really understand them fully? The theistic worldview, you know, God is supernatural, he is sovereign, he is all of the omnis, he is creator and sustainer of the universe and many other things in that worldview. How can God be in sovereign control? Here is a mystery. How can he be in sovereign control of all of creation and yet at the same time allow us the freedom to choose and free will? What a mystery. God created. We talked about that two weeks ago. How in the world, the mystery is, could he create? How could he speak and create everything that we see, feel, hear, smell, and touch and experience today out of nothing? What a mystery. God is triune, the Trinity. How can God be one substance and three persons and yet not be three gods? So you see, there are these truths that we hold, and yet there's something about all of these truths that there is yet a mystery to be discovered. And there are people that challenge these truths about which we speak. This morning, if you're watching, you may have questions about these truths that I have just uh, shared. And, and you may even challenge those. You, you may find yourself in one of maybe three or four categories. One of those is you may be a person who does not believe this worldview. Perhaps you believe another worldview. Perhaps you're a naturalist who usually means that you are a, an atheist or an agnostic or maybe a panthe pantheist or a panentheist or any number of other worldviews. And remember what we said about those. Those are mutually exclusive. Each of those worldviews is exclusive from the other and only one of them can be true. So I would ask you this morning, the truths that we have shared if you don't believe them, it is, is it because you are of another worldview? Are you open to listening to the Christian message? Some do not believe what we have said because they are opposed to them morally. And what I mean by that is a person who is not willing to accept the truth of what Scripture says because it calls for a change of lifestyle. It change for, calls for a different ethic. It calls for them to behave in a way that is different than they are prone to behave. There's a third reason that sometimes people oppose these truths. We talked about this when we spoke about truth. In postmodernity, there are those that believe there is no absolute truth. And if you say there is, what you're trying to do is to control me with your idea of truth. Truth, as you see it, is fine for you. And it may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And if you are like that today, I would encourage you to listen to what we have to say about the mysteries of God and whether or not there might be truth to them. But by far, probably the most typical response today is those who simply doubt what I say and what the scripture says or who disbelieve it. Doubt and disbelief. You know, there have been in history, in the history of philosophy, a couple of different approaches to reality and discerning what reality is and what it means since the onset of the Enlightenment. And let me talk about those two approaches to doubt and disbelief for just a moment. Because this is one reason that many, many people do not believe what the Scripture says and the Christian message. 
You go back to Descartes, Rene Descartes, and Rene Descartes came at, at it from the approach of reason and rationalism. He said, I am going to doubt everything until I can prove it rationally. He even doubted that he existed. You know. And you know his famous quote, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And that convinced him that he existed. I'm glad he finally believed that he existed. But uh, we, we kind of laugh at that. But, you know, what he's doing is he's plumbing the depths of pr pretty heady philosophic stuff. H have you ever wondered, for, for example, do we really exist? Or is this all a dream? Oh, no, you've never thought that. That's silliness. Yeah. Well, that's what he's talking about, you know. The, the good thing about Descartes was he approached it from the standpoint of doubt, but it was with a view toward understanding, with, a, with the idea of believing. He was, he, was a, he was a Catholic, he was a believer, and he, was, he questioned all of these things, but his ultimate goal as a mathematician and philosopher was to prove those things to be true. On the other hand, there's another approach, and it was empiricism with John Locke, and uh, Locke was uh, something of a believer and had kind of a positive outlook on things, but his approach of empiricism said that he would not believe anything unless it could be proved empirically, that is experientially, that is by science or math in the laboratory. And of course, the epitome of that was about three quarters of a century later, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, who would not believe anything at all until it could be proved absolutely by science or math tangibly. This is a different approach. It's skepticism. It leads to skepticism. And it is negative in its approach to reality. It will not believe anything until it is proved with the idea that they are not going to believe in the end result. What I'm talking about, folks, is skepticism. And the reason I bring that up today is because when we speak about mystery, the opposite of mystery, one of the opposites of mystery is skepticism. It's an attitude that is strongly suspicious and closed-minded and almost always ends in disbelief. Skeptics today, and if you are one, you may find yourself in this category. You look at Christianity and you say the beliefs of Christians are illogical and irrational without solid evidence. You look at Christians with their mysteries and typically the skeptic will speak of them as being superstitions relics from an outdated and unenlightened age. You are a dark age, neolithic thinker. Hume's two arguments, two of Hume's arguments against organized religion were it becomes too enthusiastic, or on the other hand, it is too suspicious. He accused Christians of being gullible, naive, and indoctrinated by priests who wanted to control them. This is the kind of skepticism that I'm talking about today. It is a skepticism that is endemic to the new atheism. The problems with this skeptical, skeptical approach to reality and to faith is that it overly emphasizes reason and science. There seems to be, and in fact, even though we speak about postmodernity today, a lot of postmodern thinkers are really relics of modernity. Uh, they still hold this arrogant belief that we can master the universe and know everything eventually. You see, the skeptic that is a naturalist will say that we prove everything only through material evidence, and this approach, this kind of scientific approach, becomes mechanical 
and sterile and clinical. It loses all sense of awe, all sense of transcendence, and any sense of mystery. Now, I'm not saying that all scientists and all philosophers, and I'm not saying that even all atheists or agnostics are that kind of skeptic. But the typical attack on Christianity today and the mysteries that we have spoken about so far and about which we speak today, the typical counter to that is the skeptical approach that says that's irrational, it's superstitious. You see, it comes from people usually that have lost their sense of mystery. And we live in an age that is like that. You know, we spoke about the atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell a couple of weeks ago. This is the way he put it. Mystery is delightful, but it's unscientific since it depends on ignorance. You see the equation there? If you speak of mystery, then you're simply an ignorant person. He said, we must be skeptical. We must be skeptical even of our own skepticism. Well, that turns the argument back upon himself doesn't it? So what are some challenges to this kind of skepticism without mystery? The skepticism that says mystery is just superstition. One is we need to remember that we are finite, our finiteness. We do not even know what we do not know, friends. We do not even know what is yet to be known, what is unknown. How can we reject mysteries today in this scientific world when we do not even understand our own mysterious nature? Max Planck, who is known as the father, the German physicist, is known for the father of quantum physics, put it this way. Science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature. Hmm. And that is because in the last analysis, you see, we ourselves are part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. That's pretty insightful. I think there's another challenge to this kind of skepticism. It causes us to lose our moral bearings. If, if, if life and thinking is nothing more than matter and our brains nothing more than neurons that follow a predetermined pattern according to natural law, and that is naturalism, if everything is only about efficiency and usefulness, that is utilitarianism, then that kind of skepticism trumps ethics, which should in fact be guiding science. You follow me? We can become so clinical with our science and reality that we forget the morality behind what we're doing. Omar Bradley, the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, five-star Army general, put it this way. You see, we, yes, we have grasped the mystery of the atom, and we have rejected the Sermon on the Mount. One of the problems with skepticism is it's one-dimensional and unimaginative. You see, what it does is it dumbs down the human experience. Even the atheistic philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, he was a pure atheist. He admitted this. You see, the more unintelligent man is, the less mysterious his existence seems to be. Even in his philosophy, there was room for mystery. There's a loss of awe and splendor in this kind of skepticism. Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience, it's not science, is the mysterious. This kind of skepticism separates us from the greatest mystery of all. And what is the greatest mystery of all? Well, in fact, it's who? The greatest mystery of all is God.
This kind of skepticism, Jeremy Taylor, an Anglican minister of the 17th century, said this, a religion without mystery must be a religion without God. So what we're talking about today in our unapologetic point is there is a need for mystery in our lives. What's the nature of this divine mystery? When, when we say mystery, what we don't mean is superstition. Superstition is an irrational belief or practice. Superstition depends on such things as fate and magic and paranormal influences, the fear of the unknown. That is not what I, I mean today by mystery. What I mean by divine mystery is something that is coherent and something that is consistent with God's character and what he says in his word. I'm not talking about the paranormal out there and superstitious stuff. Mystery is also not contradiction. It does not violate the law of non-contradiction. What is that? Something cannot be two different things at the same time in the same relationship. Yeah, let me illustrate this. I am wearing a black coat, okay? I am wearing a blue, co blue coat. Does that violate the law of non-contradiction? Well, you might think it does, but it doesn't really. Is this a black coat or a blue coat? Well, about three weeks ago, I went to get dressed, and the closet was dark. There wasn't a light on, and I put on my black coat, and I got halfway to church, and I discovered it wasn't a black coat. It was my, that's never happened to you, has it? Blue coat. Now, probably what you would have done is you would have come on to church, you know, black coat, a blue coat with black trousers. I'm, I'm kind of compulsive, obsessive, whatever that is. I turned around, went back home, and got my blue coat. But in fact, you see, it, 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 that's not a contradictory statement because I'm wearing a coat that is black, but you know, in the closet this morning, it could have been blue. All coats in my closet when the light is off are black coats. Uh, that's silliness, that's silliness. But when we apply it to meaningful things, we, really a, a contradictory statement is unintelligible. It, it makes no sense. It, it's like saying, you know, um, this is a watch, and then I say, this is not a watch. Well, in the same time, same relationship, that's a contradictory statement. Think about the Trinity. The Trinity is not a contradictory statement. We do not say God is one person and at the same time say he is three persons. We do not say that God is one essence and at the same time say he is three essences. We say this, God is one and three. He is what? One essence in three persons. And that is not a contradictory statement. So when I say mystery, I'm not talking about things that are contradictions. What I'm talking about is those things that are hidden. That is the mysterion. And it literally means in Greek to shut, to shut the mouth. The general meaning is it's a mystery that is a secret, something that's not obvious to our understanding, but it could be revealed later. And that's the religious meaning. A mystery is understood even by those, not by those that are not initiated, but once you're initiated, you learn those mysteries that were once hidden. Sometimes in mystery, there's paradox. At first, there seems to be a conflict, but as we learn more about the ways of God, and as we read his word, eventually we come to understand that paradox. Sometimes mystery has imagination in it. We think about the things that might be possible, even though they're not apparent presently. 
We read about that this morning, Satish once again in 1 Corinthians 2. You see, it fits our, it fits our intu- intuitive side, our, our aspirations and our dreams. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of humans, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Does heaven exist? I haven't seen it. Do I imagine that it does? Yes, I do. Do I know that it does? Yes, I do, because the word of God tells me. Have I seen it? No. It's a great mystery. You see, the mystery is hidden, and yet we will come to understand. We see now darkly as in a mirror, but when we see him someday, it'll be face to face. Mystery is not necessarily miraculous. All miracles are mysterious, but not all mystery is miracle. The Trinity is a miracle. I mean, it's a mystery. It's not a miracle. And yet we do not understand God's nature. The incarnation is a mystery. The miracle is the virgin birth. The miracle is the resurrection. The plan of redemption is a mystery. Christ's atonement is the miracle. There's a mystery in how God works in election and grace. How do they meet human free will and faith? That is a mystery. The scope and operation of divine mystery is this, I think. There's some things that only God knows, and he will not share them with us. And there are other things that he reveals to us as children, the initiated. In Deuteronomy 29, it says this, the, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may observe all the words of the law. The scope and the operation of God's mystery is this. Only the Holy Spirit really knows the mind of God. We read that again this morning in 1 Corinthians 2. And the Holy Spirit then reveals what God wants us to know. For to us, God reveals these things, Paul says, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. There's some things that we do not know about God. The Spirit knows some things he reveals to us. And when we get to heaven, I would propose to you, we still will not know all about God. We'll know more when we see him face to face. You see, God first hid things, and then he progressively revealed them to us. And they are mysteries. Once again, from the passage we read this morning, but we speak God's mystery, wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. And what is this mystery? The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. You see, they couldn't see it. They couldn't grasp it. For you see, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was hidden. And then God revealed it in the gospel. There are six mysteries that I find in the New Testament that are defined as such as mysteries. There are more than these, but there are six that are defined there that use the word mysterion associated with them. There's the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples, to you is revealed the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are on the outside, everything is spoken in parables that they might see but not really see, and they might hear but they might not understand. The gospel is a mystery in the New Testament. And there are three key parts of the gospel that Paul uses to describe as mysteries. There's the mystery of the crucifixion, there's the mystery of the resurrection, and there's the mystery of redemption. The gospel is a mystery. 
There is a mystery of the incarnation, Christ himself in whom all of the treasures of God are hidden in Colossians 2 and 4. It is a mystery how Christ was and is fully God and fully man. There is a mystery about the union of Christ with the church, Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and they will become one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let no person rend asunder. But I am speaking, he says, about a great mystery here, and that mystery is Christ and the church. There is a mystical union between Christ and his body, the church. There's a mystery about the Gentiles. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, Romans 11, and Colossians 1. You see, those who are on the outside have been brought into the inside. They've been initiated. And they have been united with the Jews so that we have a united kingdom, one race. This is a great mystery. There's a mystery of the faith that he speaks about in 1 Timothy 3. Deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith in clear conscience, and not just deacons. That's speaking about the teachings of the faith, the mystery of the teachings. And then there's the mystery of godliness. Today's text, 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 16 then. This is against the background of learning how to conduct ourselves. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You see, this passage is in the context of our understanding this. We are made stewards of God's mysteries. That's another place that Paul uses that term, mystery. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says, As servants of Christ, we are stewards of God's mysteries. And if so, we are required to be trustworthy. And that's what he's talking about here. You see, as he, as he speaks to Timothy, he says, You are to be trustworthy and faithful with the mysteries of God. You are to hold these in common confession, in unison, to speak from the same text, or if you will, to sing from the same sheet of music, because in fact, this verse was probably originally a hymn, or fragment of a hymn, very much like the closing hymn that we will sing, which professes core beliefs that we have. That is what this verse is. When we close in a few moments, we will sing about this is the threefold truth. It is a hymn very much like what we find in First. Timothy 3, verse 16. This is the threefold truth on which our faith depends. And with this joyful cry, worship begins and ends. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Now let me ask you, when we sing that in closing, is that all of the mystery of the faith? No. It is a hymn that speaks about a fragment of of the core beliefs. And that is what this passage is. It's not a comprehensive theology. But in this statement, this common statement, this common confession, this pledge that we make and we commit ourselves to in 1 Timothy 3.16, there's some profound truths. One is God is mysterious, the mystery of godliness. But the main message is we are called to be God's godly people, his stewards. 
We are to come before him in reverence and godliness and stand before him in awe. Not just because factually we know him up here, but because we are awed by his presence. We are to behave faithfully as members of God's household. And as stewards of the mystery of faith, we are to hold firmly to these beliefs. It's more than just a list of events and doctrines. It is the very basics for the mystical union of Jesus Christ with his body that we call the church. Look at the mysteries that are stated here. He was revealed in the flesh. That is a great mystery. The Jews considered that a stumbling block, the incarnation of God. The Greek Platonists said, no, gods don't take on flesh. And yet God became man, and Christ was fully man and fully divine. And he made the perfect human atonement for our sin. Vindicated in the spirit. God's spirit raised Christ from the dead and vindicated his whole ministry. This violated the Jewish sense of crucifixion. Surely a Savior would not be crucified on a cross. And it became a scandal to both Greeks and Jews. There could not rationally be any such thing as a resurrection. That's irrational. Vindicated in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit vindicated Christ when he was poured out at Pentecost, when Christ poured him out to form the church, the mystical body, to empower them to proclaim the gospel. Vindicated in the Spirit, when the Spirit of Truth in John 16, it says this, that he brings conviction of sin, and then he brings the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the righteous one at his right hand of God the Father. Vindicated. He is the righteous one. Seen by angels, despite the skepticism of the Sadducees who said there was no such thing as an angel, those angelic witnesses who saw him glorified are the same angels that someday he will send forth to gather his elect from the four winds and the four corners of the earth. Proclaimed among the nations, this is a great mystery. You see, the church, the body of Christ, is not just one biological race of Jews. It's not just following a cultic God, Jehovah, of only the Jewish people no, he is sovereign Lord who seeks redemption of all people, of all ages, of all times, of all nations. The mystery is the body of Christ is one race, united in Jesus Christ. Regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of our gender, regardless of our background. What a great mystery. You see, proclaimed to all the nations, to all the people groups, believed in the world... Folks, that seems, what's mysterious about that? The word world here is used in this context. The cosmos, which was the dark world in which light came. It is the ignorant world that did not know him. It is the world that he speaks about in John 17 that hated him and his disciples. And yet the gospel message came into this dark and evil and suppressive world. And it brought light and transformation and redemption to the point that even the enemies of Christ came to believe in him. What a mystery. Taken up into glory. There are three great mysteries here. Bodily, he has been glorified, and the mystery is someday he's going to come back bodily. He personally atoned for us by entering into the holy place before the Father. And he today is present at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, continuing to make intercession for us. This hymn proclaims profound mysteries of our faith. So how do we apply it? How do we engage a skeptical world? 
This morning, if you're listening to this message and you have questions and doubts and maybe a bit skeptical about the things that I've said, remember this, it's okay to doubt. It is okay to doubt. Abraham doubted. He questioned God's ability to give him his son, Isaac. Moses doubted. He said, how in the world are you going to feed all of these people? Are you going to make a table out of the desert? Zechariah doubted when he was told that Elizabeth would bear John. Jesus did few miracles in Nazareth because the people doubted him. The women, when they saw that the tomb was empty, they come back to the disciples that had followed him for three years, and they still do not believe the message because they doubt. It's okay to doubt. God understands that. This morning, if you have doubts, God understands it. And just like when Peter was sinking into the sea, Jesus didn't just look at him and say, stand on your own, buddy. He reached down and pulled him up out of the sea, and then he encouraged him to believe. When the father looks at him with his son who is possessed by a demon, and he says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'll heal him when you really believe. He healed him. When Thomas comes into the room and he didn't believe, Jesus didn't rebuke him and say, go back and don't come, don't come back in until you believe. He said, no, look at me. Put your hand on your side. Put your fingers in my hands. He understands when we doubt. The solution is this. We must pray and ask God for assurance. Diagnostics and atheists, can they pray to God and does he listen? Absolutely. God listens to anyone. If you have doubts this morning, ask God. Ask God to reveal through his spirit of truth the truth. And then if you become convinced that it is true, stand confidently and indisputably upon the confessions of his word. And that's where we are. It's okay to doubt. But then God brings his spirit of truth to fortify Christians and to strengthen them in their faith in the word of God. A second observation is we need to give a strong witness for the mysteries of God. Sometimes Christians feel intimidated because of brilliant atheists with their rationalistic arguments, and we become intimidated by rationalism and science. The irony of this is, is, is this point, folks. When you try to pit science against mystery, a true scientist does not do that. But when you try to pit science and reason against mystery, science will collapse upon itself. Because the fact of the matter is, the key motivating drive behind science is to discover mystery. Think about it. Science is always pushing the edge to discover the things that are hidden. A scientist who does not believe in mystery is no true scientist at all. You see, the un there are many unsolved mysteries in math and science. The Millennium Prize, many of you have heard about it. There are seven well-known mathematical problems that have been selected by the Clay Mathematics Institute in 2000. To solve one of those problems, the reward is a million dollars. There's mystery in math. Only one of those has been solved, the Poincaré conjecture, and I couldn't even begin to tell you what the problem's about. There are many unsolved physics mysteries. Back in 1900, Lord Kelvin a British physicist made this bold claim. He said, there is nothing new to discover in physics. <laughs> All that remains is more accurately to measure its quantities. And in that very same year, Max Planck introduced quantum physics. And five years later, 
Einstein published his special theory of relativity and 10 years later his general theory of relativity and within 30 years the whole scientific world was turned upside down. There are many unsolved mysteries in physics. How does gravity and how does general relativity fit into quantum physics? Why can't we calculate and predict the masses of the 18 subatomic particles? Why can't we fix the location of a particle and the movement of its wave at the same time? What about dark energy that is supposed to be the cause for the acceleration of the universe? That's the theory, but does it exist? What about dark matter, which theoretically comprises 90% of the matter in the universe? Does it really exist? What about something as simple as friction? What causes friction? Well, this, that causes friction. My hand's warm. <laughs> but you know, when you look at the subatomic level with all the quantum particles, there's no friction. What causes it? You see, there's great mystery in science and math. And when somebody tries to argue with you from a scientific or rational philosophic standpoint that mystery is nothing but superstition, they are bankrupt. Two more points. Remember this, friends. People out there do not have consistent worldviews. A person may say he is an atheist. A person may say she's an agnostic. But people do not have consistent worldviews. Many atheists and agnostics are not pure naturalists. They believe in the paranormal. A UK project called Understanding Unbelief says, has found this, that of those surveyed, 33% of Chinese atheists believe in astrology. 25% of Brazilian atheists believe in reincarnation. 25% of Danish atheists believe that some people have magical powers. Agnostics showed similar patterns, but to a greater degree. In America, the Pew Research Center has discovered this, that of the nuns, those folks that do not identify them with any religion whatsoever in America today, 61% of them believe that spiritual energy is in objects. 52% believe in psychics, 51% in incarnation, 47% in astrology. The really scary fact is this, that same research project by Pew says this, Christians, 37% of Christians believe that spiritual energy is contained in objects. 40% of Christians today in America believe in psychics. 29% believe in incarnation. 26% believe in astrology. Folks, it makes my point. My point that I said at the very beginning of this sermon. And what was that? That many people that call themselves Christians do not really understand the mysteries of the faith today. 1 Timothy 3.16 and the other mysteries that go along with it. We must do a better job of deconstructing the confusion. We must do a better job of proclaiming the gospel message and helping people see that in fact those things are not supernatural. Psychics and the paranormal are not supernatural. Leads me to my last point. We need to help people understand that biblical theism is the only consistent true worldview. Only God is supernatural and sovereign over all nature and all of those things he is over that people call paranormal. And the Bible warns this explicitly. It is a very dangerous thing to become involved in them. We need to invite people, friends, 
to experience the mystery of godliness. It's important for us to give them evidence. But we should not just barrage them with facts and evidence. You see, for many people out there today, this will not convince them. The postmodern mindset will simply say, those facts may be good for you, and it may be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. We must still show them that the gospel is coherent. But it's not just a list of doctrines. It's not just a list of beliefs. It's not just a list of historical events. There is something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is something about the existence of God that is mystical, that is awesome, that is majestic, that is transcendental. And with that, are there paradoxes? Yes. Are there enigmas? Yes. Because God is paradoxical. God is enigmatic to our little bitty human minds. Who knows the mind of the Lord to instruct him? We, friends, are in, invited and we should invite our friends to encounter the numinous, majestic splendor of the Almighty God who is above nature. For it is he who is the author of science and he is the governor of reason. And folks, ultimately, ultimately, he is the mystery. Let's pray. Father, we do not understand fully who you are, and we do not understand the way you work completely. But you have revealed yourself clearly in this way. You are God who loves us, and you are God who loves us so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that if we will believe on him and his sacrifice for us in our sin, and if we will repent of our sin, and accept him as Lord and Savior. We will be saved. This morning, if there's someone who has been prompted to that point, urged by that point, has a feeling deep in their bones, Father, I believe that it is your Holy Spirit that is speaking to them now, and I pray that they will make that pledge and that commitment to surrender his or her life to you. And we thank you for this very simple and clear promise that you will come to live within them. Your Holy Spirit will dwell within them. Your Holy Spirit will cleanse them of all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they will then gain an inheritance in heaven where you have made a place for them through your Son who is at your side. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.